Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right. Hey, everybody. This is Brad Listy. This is The Other People Show. I'm in Los Angeles. How are you? Barrett Swanson is my guest today. He's got a new essay collection out on Counterpoint called Lost in Summerland. I had a nice time talking with Barrett. He is from Wisconsin, as am I, and we grew up in neighboring towns. Today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University Press. Northwestern University Press has a new novel out called Under the Spell by Benjamin Hedin. Newly widowed Sandra is searching her husband's email when she discovers a correspondence between him and a woman named Ryan. Rather than simply sharing the news of the death, Sandra impersonates her husband as she writes back. This bold course of action will expose the secrets and solitude within her marriage, prompting her to reconsider everything she once held dear. That's Under the Spell by Benjamin Hedin, available now from Northwestern University Press. Listeners of this program receive a 20% discount on Under the Spell or any other title from Northwestern University Press. Just use the promo code PPL20. That's PPL20. The offer is available at nupress.northwestern.edu. That's nupress.edu. .northwestern.edu. Go get yourself a copy of Under the Spell by Benjamin Hedin, available now from Northwestern University Press. All right, so you ready for the main event? Let's get to Barrett Swanson, his new essay collection, Lost in Summerland, is a mesmerizing, troubling, edifying journey into the heart of contemporary America. There are different ways to characterize it, but he covers a lot of ground and he does so very uh, deftly. And I'm pleased to catch him at this moment in time, at this juncture in his young career. So without any, que- uh, without any question, <laughs> without any further questions from... I don't know. You know what I mean. Without any further ado, without any further preamble, here is Barrett Swanson. And his new essay collection, one more time, is called Lost in Summerland. Yeah, 
yeah, it kind of came to me later, I, in, in part because so many of the pieces deal with kind of zany or out there subcultures, right? I was dispatched by various magazines to go to one place or another. Or I'd be writing about um, personal experiences with with kind of uh, heterodox communities. Um, in the case of spiritualism with my brother who had, you know, some psychic phenomena, was experiencing some psychic phenomena. So it was relatively late, I would say, in the process where I began to see um, what I take to be um, the most legible theme about narrative breakdown um, emerging. I began to see that, I think, pretty late. I think I had maybe 75% of the essays done. And then um, the last two the one which is the title essay lost in summerland and then um the one about disaster city those are the last two and i really saw all of the all of what i took to be the dormant themes kind of burbling to the surface the the ways in which personal narrative breakdown um a kind of distrust of narrative personally and then almost a national distrust of narrative um, kind of colliding in, in those two pieces. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Narrative breakdown, because I was thinking about the book before we came online and I was trying to come up with what I felt was like an overarching theme or what I felt was like the, the core of it. And what I was thinking was alternate modes of living yeah. In post 9-11 America. <laughs> like it, yeah. that feels kind of like a fulcrum, you know, for you personally in your own personal narrative and obviously for the country. But in so many of these essays, like you say, you're exploring alt uh, alternative communities and I can feel you. And I, I, this resonates with me because this is a, this is of interest to me personally. Uh, but reaching and wrestling uh, with this idea of um, like, how do how, how else can we do this as humans? You know, like it doesn't <laughs> yeah. seem, it doesn't seem to be working. Like whatever we've been doing has led us to this point, And I don't think anybody's content to stay here. So how can we do this better? Yeah. I mean, I think, so the, the book begins with an essay called notes from a last man, which was putatively a piece about going to Florida for a vacation. Um, my wife's family, um, her grandfather lives in Florida, and he offered us uh, the chance to go stay down there for a little while. And what it ends up being is um, a moment in which I, it, it coincided with a moment in my life in which I was almost fatally depressed, um, really had had run up against certain um, cognitive habits or calisthenics of thought that were just not serving me anymore. And really it was born of, um, I, w I had been tutored in graduate school in this kind of critical framework that's called the hermeneutics of suspicion, which is um, the impulse to treat any kind of text as um, an agent of manipulation or this kind of um, this this relic of someone's bias or, or faulty thinking. And so um, when deploying the hermeneutics of suspicion, one is supposed to be rather merciless. It's a kind of um, unforgiving way of reading a text. And it became um, somewhat pathological in my case when I started to, when I started to apply that lens to my, 
to my personal life or to my to my own psyche and uh, you know when you, when you get to that point when you're so susceptible of of narrative and and um the ways in which people are constructing meaning in their lives just sort of so prone to interrogate it you really i mean it it leads to pretty dark head spaces and if yeah if if the theme i mean i'm glad that i'm glad that you characterize it that way because there is a sense in which i'm kind of it occurred to me late that what all these essays are, are casting about for alternative ways to live, right? These other subcultures trying to make heads or tails of their lives by taking up certain narratives or taking up surrogate ideologies, be them techno-utopianism, be them spiritualism and new ageism, be them, you know, the sort of fictional narratives of Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing, right? Like I go to all these places and I'm really trying to make a cogent and fair effort and understanding how these how these people are are coming at the the task of meaning making how are they finding solace in their lives um yeah well that's yeah. An, that's interesting and kind of moving to hear you say that because you know you write really eloquently about the difficult uh head spaces that you were in when you were depressed um, and then to think of this collection as a way of like casting about trying to not just find different ways of living, but I think also find different reasons to live, which is tied very much to that pursuit. You know, it's like, uh, you know, if the, the current mode isn't working out that well, there's a kind of, uh, touching resilience in in going out and doing the hard work of trying to find other modes, um, you know, even if they lead you into crazy places where you're like you're in disaster city like in disaster simulations you know under under some like you know what is it like faux rubble you know like on your phone oh, no. very very real rubble i mean it was it was truly a collapsed building i mean of, of course they sort of create these little little safe nooks and crannies into which they deposit um their victim volunteers but it certainly didn't feel fake at the time i have to say well uh, I really enjoyed it, and I feel like you have good instincts, like as a journalist and as somebody trying to survey the landscape. It's a really big task to take on, even if you did it piecemeal without really knowing what you were doing. It's like a, you know, I think a, you, you have good instincts, and I enjoyed the ride. And I want to talk uh, about a piece that probably made my skin crawl the most. <laughs> I, I say this as a term of endearment, you know, like it's yeah. like. But the, it's it's the the men's retreat. Um, yeah. I, I recently talked to uh, Melissa Phoebos. I think just last week. You know, by the time this goes live, and she she writes this great essay in her book uh, Girlhood about going to a cuddle party, <laughs> and the effect that that essay and the essay about the men's <laughs> retreat had on me were similar. <laughs> Or I'm just like imagining myself, you know, you, you really, you, you bring the reader into this place and I'm just like, I'm just physically uncomfortable while reading, yeah. which says more about me probably than it does about the men's group or the essay. But that's an intense crucible to put yourself into. And I think you, you felt somewhat similar discomfort, but. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Sure. So I was, yeah, I was the dispatched by Harper's to go to. 
a men's retreat hosted by this company called Everyman, which is um, one of the more one of the more fashionable organizations that have come up to help men redress toxic masculinity, get in touch with their emotions, um, and that yeah, that retreat took place in Ohio, and it was a weekend long. Um, basically a kind of festival of catharsis. We did a whole number of exercises ranging from the relatively banal, so like small group uh, kind of conversations in which promiscuous self-disclosure was encouraged to um, your your kind of standard, I guess what would one would associate um, with these men's groups if you're thinking historically, like thinking about the Iron Johns from the 1990s or like... Um, something something like those masculinist groups of the 1970s um so there were like anger ceremonies we were we trotted out into the woods and were enjoined to scream at the highest decibels um and kind of release our anger um and then we we did something too called holotropic breath work um which is uh, which was uh, billed to me as a kind of pranayama breathwork exercise, but was actually developed by a psychologist in the I want to say it's the late '60s. It's been a minute since I've since I've been in that material by by a psychologist named uh, Stalinslav Graf, who wanted to come up with a breathwork routine that could mimic the effects of LSD. And, well, and I should interrupt. Uh, I should interrupt you here. Yeah, yeah. Stanislav Graf did a, a ton of like. I think he's known for his work with LSD, and I think in particular LSD and dying. Like that's like yeah. the the core of his research. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt like death uh, while I was doing it. I have to say. <laughs> so right. So um, we were we were kind of um, invited to come back to this, ma- this main lodge on a Sunday morning at around 6am. And after doing, uh, the morning calisthenics, we were invited to lay on the floor and, and try out this breath work. And after about 15 minutes of basically hyperventilating, um, the men started erupting with screams and, and, in, um, sobbing it, it sounded like hell um, in in a very real way. I think I describe it in the piece as sounding like um, a tableau vivant of a Hieronymus Bosch painting because it was just um, the most intense emotional release that I've been part of. Um, and of course, when one does research on holotropic breathwork, one discovers that it's not advised to do it in an unsupervised capacity without professional therapist present because people vulnerable populations can have psychotic breaks or psychotic episodes um they're touching on profound trauma and without proper reintegration of that trauma can be very dangerous um so rather than the retreat itself rather than offering some sort of intellectual scaffolding for men to kind of think about um masculinity it was really kind of a um, a buffet of catharsis. It was a, an emotional release. And um, one of the more 
saddening things about that experience was in the wake of going to that retreat and talking to some of the other men who were there, they described not really knowing, not feeling, not being able to feel like how they did at the end of the weekend and not really knowing how to reintegrate. That was the language of the men's retreat, reintegrate into their lives. And were finding themselves kind of um, having those same stresses, anxieties, uh, angers, resuscitated the minute they got home so it was it was a weird um and deeply uncomfortable experience i have to say okay yeah no i'm now actually <laughs> uh, believe it or not i i started i think before we started recording by confessing uh, about how shitty my memory is and yet i do remember a line from this essay at the end of the essay that brought it home for me and i'm you know i'm probably going to botch it um uh, somewhat but you talk about how everybody basically leaves this retreat which is a very concentrated and intense experience. And then it ends and you have to go back to your life and your job and your family or whatever it is. And you're back into your own private grief. Right. And right. like, I've been in situations like that. Not, not exactly, you know, I've never been on one of these retreats, but you know, you go away even on a trip or you have some, yeah. some sort of reprieve from the stresses of your day to day. And it can feel like you've got it all by the tail or like you've made great progress. And then you slide back into, you know, your ordinary life and it feels like all that progress just disintegrates. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, to a certain, I mean, I, I, I try to make a case in the piece that these, these men's retreats are not dissimilar from kind of the standard wellness or self-care um, options that so many of us are offered as a palliative for some of the the emotional and intellectual deprivations of of living under neoliberal capitalism, right? Instead of instead of thinking about this as sort of the systemic problems that might be contributing to our anxiety and depression, we're often enjoined to just take up methods of self care and you know go on a silent retreat or go on a a yoga retreat, um, something like that. Instead of instead of politicizing um, that anxiety and depression and seeing it as something maybe that's that's bound up with certain structural realities of of living in this country, I think that that was that was what I was trying to get at by the end of that piece. Yeah, I mean, like the fact that I've long I, for a long time I have harbored a desire to go on a long meditation retreat just because I'm fascinated <laughs> by it. I've never done it partially because the, just the logistics of my life don't accommodate it right now. Yeah. Uh, like with family and kids and all that, it's a hard sell to my wife. You know, be like, yeah. right, honey, I'm going to go away for 30 days. <laughs> just have some quiet time. Um, but the other part of it, and this is, I think what, what I was referring to when I said that my skin was crawling yeah. is that the idea of being in a group setting as unpredictable and as emotionally loaded as one you might run into a at a men's group b at a yoga retreat c like it could be anything practically yeah i don't yeah. know what does it say about me that like my fear of that has probably been as big of a contributor to my uh you know my lack of having done one of these things <laughs> you know like <laughs> <laughs> i think you just have uh, like a more highly evolved uh, empathetic gland or something because you wouldn't have that you wouldn't have that fear unless you were worried that you would get enlisted into the group think right and it's yeah i mean my experience in in a lot of these communities and i think some of the pieces bear this out is that you get you get em emotionally entangled with some of these people like you see 
you see the desperation for for this kind of surrogate ideology of this narrative of making heads or tails of their lives and you know um there's a piece there's a piece in the collection about going to lilydale um and maybe we'll we'll talk about this in greater detail at some point but there is this is a spiritualist community there's um it's a town in upstate new york of 275 psychics and mediums that live in this gated community and when i was there this woman very earnestly i was at a I was like at a cocktail party at this like spiritualist art gallery where they had all these paintings on the wall that were putatively made under kind of trance channeling so a ghost was an or a spirit was inhabiting the artist and helping them construct these murals or whatever and this woman um looked at me and she's she just said to me i I once saw a woman give birth to a spirit baby and i you know i just looked at her and blinked very slowly and kind of not nodded very soberly and tried to tried to think about like what why is this person why does this person (laughs) need that right like there's um what what in their lives makes them um susceptible to a to a narrative like that to make a sense of what they've been through and sure enough she had um she had had a pretty traumatic experience with her brother dying and um so yeah i mean it's it's hard not to get it's when i think i think some of these communities are a little bit self-selecting right like you don't you don't go to these places unless you need them um and one way or another i find myself implicated when i go like i see I see why I'm there. I, I I don't end up writing the piece unless I can see that, right? If I can see the moment where I'm somehow implicated. Well, the irony of this, like uh, the irony of my feelings about all of this stuff is that I have all of these reservations and all of this aversion. And at the same time, I am very likely to spout off about how I think we need to be more connected in real ways as people. We need more community. Yeah. The idea, the idea of men getting together to talk about toxic masculinity and to take it apart and to try to, um, you know, find a different way forward. Who can argue with that? That is, that is what we need. And yet when people actually do it, I'm appalled. (laughs) Well, well, I think part of that too is, I think part of that, um, part of that skepticism is born of the fact that it's, that it's not really uh, unpacking those things in any kind of intellectual or meaningful conceptual way there's no there there wasn't at least the retreat that i went to any sort of earnest or concerted discussion about some of the ways in which um masculinity or sort of the cultural imperatives or the historical legacies of masculinity are actually affecting uh those men and so because it's not doing that is instead just doing anchor ceremonies or something like that. But of course we would feel queasy about it. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, but I, but I hear you. I mean, it's, it's hard to go to those spaces. Uh, you have to um, make, you make yourself vulnerable. Um, it's emotion. It can be emotionally taxing. And like you say, if you have like an extra empathy gene, you know, maybe it, it, yeah. it like kind of rakes you over the coals more than other people. <laughs> No, yeah, I I come back from these some of these reporting assignments just just a husk of a person because they're so emotionally taxing. Um, but that's got to mean you're going to probably get a good piece out of it. I mean, if that's happened to you, then you've got something to write about at least. Yeah, I mean, 
I think part of, partly that, but I also think I'm just kind of like neurochemically a toddler. So um, I think there's some of that too. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Uh... Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty, and Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So, you know, I, I think one of the things that comes to mind as I uh, ponder the men's group essay and other essays in the book, you know, you mentioned the Lilydale. I want to get to that. But, you know, just different modes of being and trying to be better in the world, you know, more helpful, more uh, like saner. Mm. It, the The thing that occurs to me is that there are no shortcuts, at least none that I've ever found. Like maybe there are some accelerants, maybe there are ways of having a concentrated experience that offers some kind of insight that can give you kind of a boost along the way. Mm -hmm. But uh, it feels to me like at least the way that I'm wired up, the only way that I'm going to ever make any kind of significant progress as a human being, like psycho-spiritually, uh, I guess is what I'm talking about, is like slow and steady. In, mm. in very, like, very slow increments yeah. over a long period of time. And, like, without getting hopefully too, like, precious about it, I think of uh, meditation just because that's my thing. And uh, yeah. I've been doing it for a long time and, like, very slow and steady. Like, it's just an exercise in daily failure, basically. Yeah. But one of the things that's always really rung true to me, and I think it's why I why it resonates with me is this idea that uh forgetfulness is the opposite of wakefulness or mindfulness like the mm. the idea that i forget everything like i forget what i read like the wisdom that i, I goes into my head and i'm like oh my god i'm all lit up by it and then like a week a week later i don't have anything you know barely or at least nothing yeah. that's like easily graspable but to dial it even like more um narrowly like i could be sitting and kind of like awake or like calm and peaceful or whatever, you know, some approximation of that. 
and then the the session finishes and like 15 minutes later i'm like shouting at one of my kids in the kitchen or something. <laughs> you know what i'm saying like it just it's so slippery and like it just it's a it's yeah. very humbling it's very humbling is the i guess the point it's very hard yeah. to to like measure human progress or measure my own progress in a way that... do you think do you think that your that your spiritual growth is always bound up with I mean, is it experiential? Is it intellectual? Is it is it these kinds of um, daily practices like meditation, or do you find do you find other like other experiences can can jolt you forward as well, or no? Yeah, no. I mean, like, I, I like an, an obvious one would be like a psychedelic experience. I think yeah. that that could serve as an accelerant, uh, at least to some degree, or like a, a like some kind of cleansing thing, you know. But yeah. I think where I'm at right now, and it's always changing, I, you know, it's always subject to change, but I think where I'm at right now is that I really understand the role of ritual mm. and consistency in, in like, at least my life. Uh, I understand the necessity of it mm. be, because of this constant forgetting, you know, like mm. even like enlightened, quote unquote, enlightened beings, like they're, they're still practicing. It's not like they, they hit the mm. mountaintop and they're done. Right. You know, there's just like this constant need to like reboot and recharge and uh hopefully over time, you know, your your benchmark or whatever for sanity gets higher up the chain. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know, that's where I'm at. I'm just like I I, re I rely on the ritual of it and like the day to day consistency of it. A because I feel like it does in some small but measurable way help me, but B because like I haven't found anything better at this point. Like if you got something, I'm yeah. all ears, you know? <laughs> no, I'm the last person to ask that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I put myself in a rubble pile, uh, to figure it out. Um, I mean, I, I think the closest I, I've, I've, I actually just, I just started trying transcendental meditation. Um, and have been like like you have have slow and steady progress it's kind of hiccupy um and i don't i don't know whether i notice any appreciable difference in my overall mood or my general heart rate not really i mean i think you know a book launch generally is is a somewhat uh anxiety inducing but uh, for me i think you know the what resonates for me about what you were saying about ritual is really the writing practice right particularly um, there's a kind of addictive element to it because you, you do the, you do the piece and it's, it's at the beginning, it's this glorious romance. And by the end of it, when it finally comes into the publication, you see, you've read this thing so many times that it's all the jokes are dead to you. The language is dead to you. Um, it comes out, it does its thing. And then, and then you're kind of back at the beginning and, it, it's almost it's almost like there is a kind of forgetting that takes place of how arduous that was and it's it, it can feel kind of pathological at least to me just because i find the whole thing so um rattling as a person emotionally um it's like i forget how hard it was and then i'm like maybe i should do a piece about <laughs> i don't know kill shelter like I'm, I'm i'm trying to convince someone um a magazine to let me do a piece about uh, kill shelters, dog dog shelters that that kill animals, and the the people who come from no kill shelters to come rescue these dogs, 
Um, but it's like, why would, why would I want to go work in a kill shelter? Like, why do I want to do this? But that sort of ritualistic element or this kind of cyclical forgetting. But I, I do find that I, one obviously just does progress, like either intellectually or just artistically. I do find myself kind of moving forward or going deeper in each time, each time. Um, the extent to which that feels quote unquote spiritual to me is, is altogether different. Um, or unclear, I guess. But I, I do think that there's a kind of emotional component too, right? Because by the end of this book, I mean, I mean, I started the book in a suicidal place. Um, and by the end of the book, I was somewhere else. Um, by the end of writing these pieces, I was somewhere else. Um, so I do think, I do, I don't know. I mean, it's it's weird. It's, it's maybe a little bit... Um, mysterious to me but i do think there's a way by which there's a there's a thinker named i can't i don't even know if i'm pronouncing his name right emil Ciaran, i think chorin kind of, i think it's chorin chorin is it chorin yeah. thank you i mean i'm just revealing my just like uh, pyrotechnic ignorance about this writer but i know a little bit uh, i've read a little bit of 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 him and he has he had this line like a, a book is a replacement for a suicide um I mean, he put it more pithily than I just did, but it's something, it's something like that. And post facto, like after the fact, looking back at this book, there's a, there's an extent to which I feel like, and I, that, that makes me nervous that this is going to be seen as like a Tuesdays with Maury type book, you know what I'm saying? But there's a way in which I felt like whatever, whatever habits of mind that I had at the outset of the book that were leading me into the worst head spaces were kind of purged. Um, and I don't, I hope that the, that the, that the, the pieces don't read that way. Right. But there, but it felt like urgent for me to kind of go into the sort of intellectual inconsistencies and paradoxes and of these various stories or these various ideologies that I, I saw kind of, proliferating in the culture and that to which I felt myself susceptible. Um, like it was necessary for me to make heads or tails of, of those things before I could feel better emotionally. Um, that's, a, that's a, like a wildly unexpected answer to, I think where we were just, where we were just at, but, um, well, it makes sense though. I mean, it makes sense. It makes emotional sense. And I think too, it's like, I can feel you facing fears in a lot of these pieces, or at least facing mysteries, you know, like deep mm -hmm. mysteries that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you take a long, hard look at, I don't know, claustrophobia, fear of death and a disaster, you know, in the, in the disaster city essay, yeah. um, you know, your brother, uh, Andy, uh, you know, in the collection is the centerpiece of two of the essays, if I'm getting, yeah. it, getting it right. And yeah. to me, those essays are the heart of the collection, like the, you know, your family and especially your relationship with your brother and um, all that happened to him are are definitely at the heart of it. And there's a lot of fear there, you know, fear of loss of those we love, yeah. um, you know, fear of loss of relationship with those we're closest to or wanting those to be good, you know, like all that all that kind of family love stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I should say, too, just because I before it leaves me is that when you were talking about finishing the collection or finishing a particularly grueling piece in the collection and kind of just being like, 
I don't know, rattled and done with it. And how then, you know, some time goes by and suddenly you're entertaining the notion of <laughs> go immersing yourself in a kill shelter. It like, re <laughs> it reminds me of how like women, women often talk about how they forget childbirth. Yeah. Like you're kind of biologically geared to like have to shut things out. Otherwise you would never do it again. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. My sister-in-law said something similar to me once. Yeah. 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 Um, so let's talk about your brother. Cause I think for listeners who haven't had a chance to read, it would probably be good to orient them. Um, why don't you t talk first about like the incident, you know, at the heart of, uh, I'm going to forget the name of the essay, but it's closer to the beginning of the collection. Yeah. Um, you know, that led to your brother's injury and, and all the rest. Yeah. So, um, that piece is called okay forever. And it's, um, yeah, it recounts, uh, when my brother was 22 and I was 19, my brother was bouncing at a bar in Milwaukee and um, threw a guy out of the bar, went outside to smoke a cigarette. The guy came back and sucker punched him and left him on the sidewalk. This is Christmas Eve. Um, and left him on the sidewalk with seven brain contusions. And he had a traumatic brain injury. Um his his full recovery he was in the icu for quite a while ended up having a, like a nine month long recovery um and th thankfully he he recovered and salvaged most of his memory and all his um sort of intellectual capacities uh but he developed or purported to develop um psychic phenomenon he would he would allege to have experienced supernatural things uh hearing voices um receiving dispatches from the dead all of which i regarded with kind of a, a chilly skepticism right like i'm a cold hard materialist at at heart and um you know when you're dealing with your older brother like it's it's hard for me to conjure andy 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 is um Imagine Vince Vaughn, um, dispositionally, the, the actor Vince Vaughn, who works in like a tech company, but talks, alleges to talk with spirits. Like this is, this is my brother in a nutshell. He's like an incredibly charismatic person, um, walks into bars, makes friends instantly, um, just incredibly charismatic. Um, and so when you live, you grow up with this person in your house and you're kind of as the, as the middle brother, I was kind of, um, I have a younger sister and both of us kind of lived in Andy's sh shadow. Andy was doing vaudeville, you know, our entire childhood. And we were just kind of the sidekicks, you know, hanging in the wings watching. And so when you, when you live with that person and that person thereupon has this grievous injury and then purports to experience these things, you can't, you can't help but think he's regarding or he's he's putting putting you on right that this is kind of bullshit um and so for a long time i did and um so the first the first piece in the in the book kind of recounts that experience um those those weeks of right after his initial brain injury and um the the second essay in the book deals with our our trip to this place called Lilydale, and I don't know if you want to get into that right away or you want to talk about no, the first piece. I mean, but they're they're tied together for me, so we can just do them both at the same time. But Lilydale, there's some corner of my brain where I've read about Lilydale 
or seen a YouTube clip or something, but like I, it was new to me. I think for most people, probably it's new to them. Like, can you describe Lilydale? Like, I think you touched on it a little bit earlier. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, there was there was that. Maybe you saw that HBO documentary. Like, there's the a short HBO documentary called like The Town That Talks to the Dead or something like that. But anyway, um, Lilydale uh, is located in upstate New York, maybe an hour south of Buffalo. And it's home to 275 psychics and uh, psychics and mediums. It's this gated community, and usually they don't open their their gates to tourists. But in the summertime, they do, and usually something like 22,000 people come for all manner of New Age um, errands. There's seances, uh, astrology walks. There's a healing temple. There's automatic drawing classes. Uh, psychic readings, you know, trance channeling, apportations. Apportations are when a medium will produce physical phenomenon out of their body that that supposedly comes from the spirit world during a seance. Like what? Um, like like. Um. Like. Uh. Well, I we 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 took an eight-hour workshop with this this spiritualist named Reverend Michael Shane, and during the course of that, we did a a brief seance in which he produced. I would say like maybe a pound of stones and rubies and like these, these stones that that came out of his mouth. Um, And we had been with him all night and he had like duct taped his mouth and we performed the seance and he opened it and, you know, right. Like this is, I mean, some of it, some of it, you can't help but like regard this as just like sleights of hand, you know, that this is, this is a magic trick. Um, but there, there are, there are other um, apportationists who produce, um, I'm trying to remember the name of, it's like, um, this like weird effluvia. I don't know. They have the, this term for it, but it's, um, uh, ectoplasm <laughs> yeah i'd say it's ectoplasm it's exactly right yeah i should have been calling upon like uh the ghostbuster terminology but yeah that's exactly right um out of their mouths and um there's you you can watch what i presume to be um heavily edited edited videos of this online um but yeah so we went we went to lilydale um because andy had started having an increasing number of psychic phenomena or, um, and it was becoming disturbing to both him and his wife. And he, he, uh, he asked me if I wanted to go. And as the, as a kind of writer, I had, I'll confess to a kind of vampiric, uh, first impulse. I was like, Oh yeah, I'll totally go with you. Right. This would be be amazing. And, um, during, during the course of that experience, we, I mean, we had never been on a road trip together. You know, this is a person, um, our entire kind of fraternal relationship was forged at a few family gatherings each year, you know, and didn't, didn't much talk aside from that. Um, so the, the, the trip was almost a rekindling of that relationship, but also um, certain things happened that made me think, that made me suspend my disbelief a little bit in terms of whether or not he was accessing some other kind of knowledge. Um, in part because 
he was intuiting um well suicidal ideation in my part right um things that i hadn't disclosed to anyone not even my wife um he he had um sensed those things yeah and he said something to you he did yeah he um well, during the course of this eight-hour workshop, he did this thing called billet readings. And billet readings, so there were maybe like 10 other people in the this class. And the medium, Reverend Michael Shane, asks each person to come up to the front of the room and put silver dollars over your eyes and then duct. I mean, just real out there stuff, right? Duct tape the silver dollars over your eyes and then wear a bandana. And everyone in the room would write a number on one side of the card. And on the other side of the card, they would... Um, write a question and each person that came to the front of the room and was blindfolded had to take the index cards and just hold them up and try to 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 divine what was on each side of the card right and so people were you know not even close i mean these are people who who profess to be mediumistic or profess to be psychics and maybe we're getting like one number right out of 16 things and andy got um, and remember, like, I am the least likely person to, to buy this shit. He got maybe 70% of them right. I have it on audio recording and video. Um, and in the wake of that experience, we kind of, it was, it was nearing midnight. We walked outside and I asked him about he called, he had called my mom maybe a year before we went to Lilydale late at night, um, desperately concerned about me. And my mom's like, what are you talking about? Barrett's fine, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, was she, uh, Andy's like, just, just go call him, just call him. Um, and let me, let me know what he says. So she calls me, leaves this message. Um, and in the morning, I gave her a call back, and she said, yeah, Andy's really worried about you. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. And around that time, I was in the worst I was in the worst headspace imaginable. Um, and so when we were at Lilydale, I asked him, I was like, do you remember why? Do you remember why you called mom that night a year ago? And he's like, yeah. And I said, well, why? And he said, because I saw I saw it visions of you killing yourself and um i mean i didn't include it in the piece but i you know like i sobbed inappropriately (laughs) you know i mean that would that had been something uh i didn't told anybody about hadn't told my wife about um and uh yeah, I mean, I, I walked out of that experience thinking something else was going on. Um, some other in, level of intuition was possible, I guess. Um, I don't I don't know that I, I don't believe in spirits or, or things like that or any by any of the kind of new agey um, theology, right? But, you know, one of the things I do talk about in the piece is this this notion of quantum entanglement, that, that certain people can be quantumly entangled. And there's there's some fringe physicists who've taken up this idea. And um, what does that mean, quantum? Like just like like somehow like, you know, your brother's in 
California or Texas or whatever, and you're in Wisconsin and somehow you're linked up and experiencing each other. Yeah, essentially, essentially. And there, there are, um, there's a book by, um, this woman named Dr. Diane Hennessy Powell, who, um, she, I, I can't remember. She went to Johns Hopkins. She teaches at Johns Hopkins, but she's studying, um, the ways in which brain trauma, traumatic brain injuries can increase, uh, psychic phenomena, um, and kind of put people in touch with this kind of quantum knowledge or whatever. Um, all of it, all of it feels relatively harebrained to me still, but I'm not, I'm, I guess, I, my skepticism, that sort of hidebound skepticism with which I started the book, you know, tutored in these kind of critical lenses of, of grad school had, had so defrosted by that point that I was willing to at least read about these things, you know, and take them up as, as, um, as possibilities, this idea of quantum. There's an interesting story about Mark Twain and his brother, um, being quantumly entangled um that twain how somehow had a premonition his brother died um i believe working in the steam engine of a ship or something and and twain kind of had premonitions of this beforehand had a vision of have his brother wearing um his suit in a casket and two weeks later his brother was dead wearing his suit that he had borrowed borrowed from twain um so yeah, it's it's kind of out there stuff. Um, but I, like, here's the thing: I'm I'm yeah. I'm totally willing to go along for the ride on that kind of thing. Are you? Yeah. yeah. And I like not because I feel like super definitive in, in terms of how I see it, but simply because I there's so much I don't know, and I'm like right. professionally wrong. Like, and yeah. the human species is you know in the grand you know in the grand uh, scheme of things, it's in its infancy. Yeah. So like, who's to say that there aren't levels of consciousness or there's not, there aren't people out there who have, you know, brain activity that essentially gives them access to layers of consciousness that, you know, the more ordinary folk don't have. Right. And, uh, I think too, uh, again, I'm going to tie this back into like Buddhist reading that I do, but there was this, um, actually I think he was a Hindu like teacher. Uh, his name was Neem Karoli Baba. Have you ever heard of this guy? No. Well, he was in India and like a lot of the, the, like the first wave of baby boomer hippies who went to India and then came back to the States and started the new age movement or, you know, as yeah. we, as we know it. Right. A lot of them were taught by him or influenced by him. And it, most famously, uh, Ramdas, the, you know, the, Bay Area, I mean, Harvard yeah, um, and Timothy Leary and then Bay Area counterculture guru who wrote Be Here Now. But, you know, Neem Crowley Baba was his uh, was his guy. And then there were all these other people kind of in Ram Dass's orbit who met him and they all said the same thing. <laughs> they all tell stories of like, you know, you're hanging out, you go up and you go to meet him. Some people just like break down in his presence and start crying and like yeah. touching his feet which yeah. I, that's where I'm like, okay, A, what? B, that's gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but then the second thing, and the thing that's more persuasive to me, particularly because there are so many accounts, is that he would just look at you and he would just kind of be like, so your mom died, huh? 
Yeah. This is what he did to Ramdas. Like Ramdas was like this, you know, materialist Harvard professor. Yeah. You know, and his mother had died of a spleen injury and the night before he met um you know, Neem Crowley Baba, he had been you know, he had woken up in the night to pee, basically. He went outside yeah. and then he was looking up at the stars and he thought of his mom who had died like six months earlier. Oh. And you know he wasn't with anybody. This is how yeah. he tells it. He just like thought of her and had like a moment of like communion with her and her memory. And then he goes back to bed. And then the next day, uh, he meets Neem Crowley Baba, and he's like, "You were thinking about your mom last night, weren't you?" Yeah, and he's like, like oh. "Yeah." He's like, "You know, she died. It was something to do with her spleen." <laughs> and like, so Richard Alpert, you know, this is pre Ramdas. Yeah. Richard Alpert just explodes in tears, sobs. And um, there are many of these stories where the person's there, named Crowley Baba, tells them basically who they are. It looks like right through them, tells them what they're thinking, and their immediate response is to just break down and sob. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so I'm like, okay, how many of these fucking stories can exist? Like, right. I'm willing to be like super skeptical on one, but like over and over again. Yeah. And then the other part of me... Like the ego, you know, egoistic part of me is like, why the fuck does this shit never happen to me? Like, <laughs> I want someone to see into my soul. Like, tell me what's going on. Love me, like, unconditionally. Right. Right. <laughs> I'd give anything for this sort of magical experience. Like, why does this never happen to me? But I don't know. Like, I, I guess I'm just willing. And then I think, too, uh, like, at the level of humility, I'm willing to be open to it. And then I think, too, like psychedelic experiences have really colored my thinking on a lot of this stuff just because they're so wild and they've just obliterate any notion of conventional materialistic reality that I've had to the level that it just leaves, it leaves me with a very undefined feeling like 99% of the time. But the 1% that feels really solid and true to me is that like, there's way more than meets the eye. Yeah. Like whatever I think this is, you know, no, it's a nice, it's a nice simulation. That yeah, we, yeah, it's workable yeah. simulation. Yeah. So I don't know. Like I found the 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 Lilydale chat, you know, essay and the story of your brother. I found all that super riveting. Okay. And I guess like a question for me or a question for you would be, um, you know, as he, as he's progressed into his life and away from the injury, uh, have his psychic experiences diminished as his brain has maybe further healed itself or have they escalated? Like, where does that stuff stand now? They've escalated. I mean, I think they were escalating um, and becoming worrisome in the, in, in the lead up to our trip because he was seeing things he didn't understand or he was purporting to see things he didn't understand and that were causing him distress. Um, and some of those things obviously were about me. Um, but in the wake, I think that, you know, as much as that piece ends up being about, you know, coming to terms with my own stuff, I think that that experience for us and hopefully the essay speaks to it a little bit. I mean, it was really, um, provided some sort of acceptance for him that, that he was willing to acknowledge he wasn't trying to fight these things anymore, but yeah, he still, he does readings for friends all the time. He's still experiencing um, psychic phenomena. He's not. He doesn't. He he doesn't seem as haunted by them anymore, or he doesn't seem as up unsettled when I ask about it. Um, and it's weird too, because in the wake of that trip, we've kind of re returned to our kind of jocular teasing about it, you know. Um, 
even even despite the kind of seismic emotional revelation of that trip it's 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 we kind of come at it sidelong still there's mm-hmm. not there's not a lot of discussion about it well it's intense and an- yeah. another thing because i had a psychic i've had two psychic readings in my life by the same woman I had one the day before I left for college, and then I had one in my late 20s. So she, I talked to her twice in a decade, essentially. Wow. And she knew shit that she could not possibly have known. Seriously. She also told me John Kerry was going to beat George W. Bush. So <laughs> like, I guess the question that I have for you, and I don't know if you've talked this over with your brother, but you know, you said he got 70% of these things right when he was like, what do you, what do you call it when you're trying to read the cards? It's called billet readings. Billet reading. So the billet readings, you know, he was he was seven out of ten is a great batting average. Yeah. But like, how does he account for the three out of ten that he misses? And I, I think like, you know, I guess unless you're Neem Karoli Baba, maybe he met, missed some too. But uh, yeah. the psychic that I talked to knew things she could not possibly have known. Like it's there's yeah. just no explanation for it. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, got things wrong, and I think she even cop to it when she was talking to me she's like i won't get everything right i won't get i won't always get timelines right you know when things are going to happen she predicted my kids like with an eerie specificity she she predicted my wife like down to the color of her hair the way that it looks in the sunlight like shit like that you know that yeah you just can't you can't i can't make sense of it but what about the stuff you get wrong you know like that's what i wonder about yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I guess Andy's thirty percent was like his his carry John Kerry flub. Um, I don't know. I mean, he he talks about it like the the like you know he uses like electrical metaphors, like a transmission or something, or like the the energies. He feels it like a kind of energy. That's how he describes it. Um, but it's weird too. We went we went and did a psychic reading um while we were at lilydale we did i mean we did any number of them but we went to this this woman named i think it was gretchen clark and she was like a fifth generation spiritualist so she had five generations of of people who had been at lilydale at this this community and so it was in her family and she looked at me within maybe five minutes of my sitting on her couch and she's like, someone's here, and um, they're they're drowning. And yeah, yeah. And I have that that essay in the book about my friend Luke who drowned in the Mississippi River. And I and and, 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 to, and to whom this book is dedicated. Yes, yes. Um, and Andy looks at me with like throttle popped eyes, and he's like, "That's Luke. Luke's here." And um so yeah i mean i'm 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 totally willing like you i'm willing to believe that people have access to other uh, other um echelons of consciousness or echelons of energy um and uh yeah i i'm comfortable saying i don't i don't know what yeah i don't know how to how to even talk about that in a meaningful way. Like my, the closest approximation was just that Lilydale piece was like trying to get at, like, how could I possibly explain this? And it kind of ends, it kind of ends in a weird boy too. That piece does. Yeah. How does that remind me how it ends? It ends with a memory of, um, a suicide attempt when I was like a kid, when I was like a early adolescent. Um, 
but it's a it's the memory of that i'm at the 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 healing temple at lilydale and experiencing that memory again um yeah damn uh one of the things that comes to mind when you talk about like not being able to explain it is brain neurochemistry Mm. Like if we're going to try to like, if we're going to try to think about this logically, you know, your brother was not having, uh, was not experiencing psychic phenomena prior to his injury. Right. Uh, an injury that produced seven brain contusions and no doubt altered his neurochemistry. Yeah. Uh, so it seems logical to me that whatever electrical charges he's experiencing are a direct result of the changes in his brain makeup, like chemically, Maybe, yeah. maybe structurally, maybe when it, you know, neuroplasticity, brains rewire themselves. Right. Like I would, I, I, you know, I don't know how they scan brains these days, you know, but it, you know how sometimes they can scan a brain and they can show you like what part of the brain is, is activated by certain stimuli. Right. Like, I'm just wondering, like, is there an antenna that got act? It seems like an, like some sort of antenna got activated in your brother's head that was previously dormant. Yeah. And that's what yeah. people who are psychic have. They have, you know, for whatever reason, they have an antenna that's receiving these signignals. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it, it could well be. I mean, he he at least he would talk about having some experiences before his injury, but I do think whatever happened during the injury, it, it sharpened it or it sort of jostled his brain into a different acuity of this. But I mean, um. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I. Do you read any Oliver Sacks? No, um, no. I, I mean, it's like one of those things. Like it's on my list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got this book about um, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, and he, in that book, he, he has this essay about the the proprioception, right? Just like the body's ability to understand where it is in space. And this, I believe, it had a brain injured person um, lost their ability they lost their proprioception. And so the, how they would move through space was so um, disoriented. They, they had no sense of where their body was at any given time. And so what you're describing is like, okay, yeah, maybe like his neurochemistry change and some antenna was activated. Um, I, f I find that convincing. I mean, there's an extent to which awareness is bound up. Like the body's, the, the body's awareness of itself is directly tied to certain mechanisms in the brain. Um so who's to say, you know, that couldn't be rewired in some way. Yeah. So I want to talk about violence. Um, you know, we've already been talking about it with respect to your brother and this um, sucker punch and his brain injury. But it's a it's a theme in the book that carries over. You know, I think about uh, the essay about 9-11 and football <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, in particular, that post 9-11 era, the immediate like the year mm -hmm. or the months immediately following 9-11 which for anybody who was, you know, sentient and lived through that, you know, it's pretty hard not to have some strong memories. Uh, I certainly do. Yeah. It's a weird time. Yeah. Uh, and like, man, was there a lot of foreboding on my part, especially once like the immediate shock of it started to dull a little bit and you started to yeah. get into like, you know, the American response. I started to mm -hmm. just get creeped out. But, um, yeah. you know, there's that. There's also like the gun safety uh, exercise on campus like that essay yeah um where you know you're confronting american violence in a different way um mm. i'm trying to think of if there's anything else like peacefully organic produce you know where you go to the farm where the the um, military veteran 
has essentially, I mean, at least in my read of it, is like questing to build a kind of utopia in the aftermath of like a difficult war experience. Yeah. Um, so that's another manifestation of how violence can affect, you know, the heart and the psyche. Um, so I don't know. I, I guess like maybe a question would be where it all left you, you know, these explorations, it certainly seems like something you were trying to confront either consciously or not, you know, um, do, do you find yourself with a deeper understanding of what plagues us? Uh, or have you gotten to a place where you feel, I don't know how you could feel at peace about it. That seems like an oxymoron, yeah. but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, where did it lead you all these different confrontations? Yeah, I mean, there's a way I think, yeah, it's interesting. I didn't necessarily think about um, about those three pieces being in, in conversation with one another, but I definitely think they are in some sense. And two, I probably I would probably loop in the Disaster City piece because it's a kind of violence um yeah, I mean, the the sort of personal element to this is that, you know, I was like a cataleptically fearful little kid and had obsessive compulsive disorder. And the ways in which my obsessive compulsive disorder has this element called intrusive thought syndrome, which is basically the person gets bombarded with um, what what the literature calls ego dystonic thoughts, thoughts that don't seem in keeping with who you are as a person or what your ordinary life looks like. And so, you know, you'd be haunted by visions of just like coming home from school and your, your like family members are strung up on the rafters of your garage or some, something like that. Or you, you go to school and you, you see tornadoes like just eviscerating everyone. So the constant bombardment of these sorts of thoughts, um, so I think that at least going to Disaster City, that was an essay in which I it was it was like a topic that like so many of the pieces when they're first assigned to me, they're just kind of like these zany topics like, oh, yeah, there's a 52 acre compound in College Station, Texas, where FEMA trains their first responders by coming up with the simulated town where they do train derailments, collapse buildings, mass shootings, pandemics, any possible woe you can think of. And they hire victim volunteers and they embed them in all these scenarios and put makeup on them and, you know, metal impalements sticking out of them. It's almost like Hollywood grade moulage. And so I go there thinking that this is just going to be a kind of, funny fun piece right um but what actually you know in doing some of the prefatory research what you what you learn is that this is part of a national response to these types of situations that privileges preparedness over prevention like actually trying to prevent these things from happening would require some other kind of narrative about how we might redress these things and so uh, I'm like a, a, I guess a evocative example of this that emerged from the research was that, you know, in the 1970s, I think it's the early 1970s that FEMA got started. All of the sort of disaster uh, appropriations for disaster preparedness that Congress gave out were really geared toward Cold War narratives, right? Like staving off a nuclear attack from Russia or something like that. 
when the far more costly, both in terms of financial, like, you know, damage, infrastructure damage, lives being lost, the more the more urgent and exigent um, disasters were hurricanes, you know, bad zoning laws, building in hazardous landscapes. And unsurprisingly, that tracks pretty neatly across class lines where, you know, poor communities, communities of color were most grievously affected by these bad real estate decisions and these um, criminally negligent zoning laws. Um, And so that kind of narrative about what are what are our true priorities in terms of preparedness um it actually can cause harm can cause violence systemic violence and so when i was at disaster city and taking part in this thing and i'm sitting in rubble i'm realizing that i'm kind of enacting or i'm being enlisted or conscripted in this case into a kind of narrative about oh yes you know FEMA and first responders like these people are doing unquestionably un- laudable work, but they are they are too part of a kind of national narrative about how we're supposed to respond to disaster. Like we've built disaster into the design, as it were, right? Like that w- this is part of it. We have whole mechanisms in the culture that that take for granted that these sorts of this damage from hurricanes, et cetera is going to happen instead of maybe, um, you know, marshalling the political will to reimagine how we think about zoning laws or how we think about construction or what we're going to decide as a country is, um, you know, the best way to legislate building regulations or these sorts of things. And, and so like, just, just to interrupt, like, but not to get too, yeah. too dark and cynical about it, but, uh, you know, that I also, immediately start thinking about disaster capitalism. I don't know. Is that Naomi Klein, you know, yeah, Naomi but it's Klein, also, yeah. I'm always like, okay, so instead of, uh, like you say, making efforts to prepare so that these sorts of things don't happen at all, or like we can mitigate against it. I'm also, I'm also thinking, well, who's going to profit from it if we don't. Right. Precisely. Precisely. Right. And so it's, if there was if there was a unifying sort of intellectual project across these essays, I think it was it was kind of peeling back the onion layers, or, or to mix metaphors, pulling back the curtain on some of these narratives with, and how they're actually perpetuating some of the the systemic issues that they that they claim to solve. Right, like the the other salient example that's coming to mind is the piece about the Venus Project. Um, the Venus Project was this utopian community developed by um, a self-proclaimed social engineer named Jacques Fresco, who want who wanted. He since uh, passed away. He was 99 years old at the time that I visited the Venus Project. He wanted to replace capitalism with a resource-based economy um, that would be run by technology and free um, human beings to I don't know philosophize in you know the garden or whatever, right? <laughs> um, and so all, all sounded pretty dreamy and something like I could get down with. I, I, I found out about him from a student of mine who wrote a paper about him and found this YouTube clip of Fresco talking at Occupy Wall Street, um, Occupy Miami rally in 2011. And he was speaking with sort of, you know, a revolutionary Elan about how 
protesting the stock market isn't going to do anything. You need to fundamentally reimagine the culture, which I found kind of uh, quixotically, you know, kind of delicious um, and regarded him with some skepticism. But of course, so this sort of techno utopian idea, right? Uh, I go down there and, you know, get the tour of this, I believe it's a 22 acre compound of these like he's got these domes that look like portobello mushroom caps, right? And they're supposed to be like an Epcot-like design of the future. And really it was these antiquated, it was like a vision of like Soviet futurism from the 1970s or something. It was so bizarre, right? And he was like, here is the future. Um, And uh, I'm walking around and I noticed this guy's got, he's got a Facebook backpack on. And I started talking to him and sure enough, he works at Facebook and he's like, you know, it's funny because Jacques, Facebook's doing a lot of the things that Jacques Fresco is talking about. And it was revealing to me of, it was evocative of the ways in which so many aspects of, you know, our tech overlords kind of appropriate the language of utopianism. They, 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 they paint everything with the patina of, of almost like communitarian jargon, right? And, um, so the things that were coming in under the banner of progressivism, this kind of like techno-utopian element, when in practice right now, we're seeing the, the after effects of that kind of, those efforts, right? We're seeing epistemological confusion like never before. We're seeing the perpetuation of gross inequities, you know, in the tech world. Um, the, yes. com- the complete decimation of any shared sense of civic identity you know, yeah. Yeah, in, right. in the manner of a decade or in the matter of a decade. And, and, uh, you know, along those same lines, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine the other day uh, around universal basic income, which is kind of like, you know, it's often bandied about in progressive circles. And I think it's especially popular maybe in like like the tech world as like a solution. Oh, and yeah. I'm so suspicious of it because all I keep thinking is like, okay, so here's what they're going to do. They're going to have robots and AI that are going to be doing most of the jobs that people have now. They're going to give everybody $2,500 a month, which, you know, adjusted for inflation is dog shit, you know, yeah, like, right. like it's dog shit now. And it's going to be even more dog shit 20 years from now. Right. And then the the Zuckerbergs and the, the quote unquote elites of the world, they're going to have all the money. They're going to have the safe house in New Zealand. They're going to have right. the lakefront right. place in Tahoe for like right. their little mini retreats among their buddies. And yeah. they're going to be like, what are you complaining about? You've got, you've got, you've got UBI, bro. You've got UBI. Like you can philosophize in the garden while I'm on my, uh, I'm on my Learjet. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. When, when you say to, you've got UBI, it doesn't, it sounds, you know, uh, (laughs) like an STI or something. Yeah, exactly. It it might as well be that I think we should all, we should all remember that. So I just, I look very skeptically at anybody who's trying to sell me on universal basic income, unless it's exactly half of what Mark Zuckerberg is worth. Then we can right. talk. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, I want to talk to you about um, the last, I think it's the last essay in the book. It's kind of like a piece of literary criticism, if I'm recalling it correctly, where you're you're talking in particular, it's, it's not just about um, Sheila Hetty's book, um, How Should a Person Be? But that's a, one of the centerpieces of it. Yeah. And... I love that book, first of I all. I too. Yeah, yeah, I just have so much admiration for Sheila. I've had her on the show, and I just I think that book is just great. And 
I don't know if I've ever had somebody explain to me quite why I like it so much as well as you did in this essay. So I want to thank you for that. I was like, oh, oh thanks. no wonder that one stuck to me. But the phrase <laughs> that the phrase that I want to get to is the uh, the post-religious quest. Yeah, um, I guess that sort of stuff always speaks to me. It's kind of like a, something I'm fixated on as a person, but uh, I, I never I never saw it in those terms necessarily. And I think there, yeah. there's a lot of truth in that characterization of it. You know, that Sheila, the Sheila writer person and the Sheila character in the book, you know, are trying to make sense of the world post-religion, which yeah. I think I think you are, too. And yeah. I am, too, at least to some extent. I mean, you know, like, I think that's the appeal of Buddhism to me is that it's not yeah. there's not any um, magical thinking in it, you know, right. Uh, right. at least at its best. And so, you know, maybe I'm a little bit more structured than most post-religious people, but I'm certainly, I'm, I'm certainly post the Catholicism of my youth, you know? Right. Right. Uh, um, so I don't know, I guess like maybe just talk a little bit about that book and how it affected you and maybe get into the weeds a little bit more on post-religious quest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is a sort of like the, the issue of the like Catholicism of your youth. I mean, there's a certain extent to which I feel like, you know, that, that, that dilemma, right? Like being in this kind of post-religious moment is, is roughly commensurate with where the 21st century thought brought us like the post-Nietzschean, like death of God, um, you know, the post-Vietnam death of like any sort of trust in your government, like those reigning, those reigning points of orientation where we might have otherwise placed um, some sense of identity or association. They've really fallen by the wayside, right? We, we're not going to, I'm at least, as we moderns aren't going to, you know, associate um, earnestly or go all the way with maybe a traditional religion or a traditional sense of country or anything like that. Um, and it struck me as kind of like, I mean, I don't think it's, it's unique necessarily to this moment, but I do think that kind of post nine 11 post 2008 recession that to be, to be in becoming an adult at that moment was a pretty weird headspace to occupy. And so I couldn't help but noticing the, the essay to which you're referring is called church, not made with hands. Um, and it's, it's about, this kind of cluster of books that I saw somehow related to. So there's Sheila Hetty's book, which, um, I mean, I think she's a true genius. I'm like desperate to see what she does next. I thought the, the next book that she did motherhood was, um, the most interesting and exciting novel that I, that I've read, you know, in a while. Um, so I talk about that book. I talk about Carl Nosgaard, and then I talk about, um, the work of Flannery O'Connor and a little bit about David Foster Wallace, Ben Lerner, Talwin, um, those writers. But really what I see as kind of the post-religious quest or what I saw the Sheila character in that book doing is really casting about for like um, ways of living, ways of being in the world. And I believe it's the, the character's name is Margot, the friend who who she uses as a kind of model for being and weirdly you know in the in the wake of having written that essay i've been reading a lot of stanley cavell have you read stanley cavell at all no he's got this insufficiently celebrated book called the senses of walden and it's about henry david thoreau's walden which is a book that never really you know like this is like 
you know, starchy uh, curriculum reading that you get in high school. At least I did, right? And I, you know, I, the transcendentalists or whatever. But Cavell, really... I, I gotta say, I'm 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 a total like transcendentalist stan. I love him. Yeah, no, I I, <laughs> I mean, by now, I think I'm I'm with you. Um, having read the senses of wellness, he talks about, um, he talks about, or Cavell's got this this notion of perfectionism, and it's basically this philosophy. And I'm this is like a radical um, simplification of the philosophy, but that basically. Um, Moments in which you're kind of standing outside yourself, having ecstatic experiences, you're you're kind of you become your own neighbor, and you're. He reads he reads Thoreau as saying that like the we can look at the world and look at each other as moral examples that more are are fonts of kind of moral lessons about how how we might conduct ourselves and. W- you know, there's so much in Thoreau and Walden about measuring and like plumbing the depths of the farm and like figuring out its fathoms or bean counting. There's all these like units of measurement. And for Cavell, this is um, supposed to be mimetic of kind of the moral practice by which we regard the world and other people as instantiations of how we might live and how we should measure ourselves against them. And so for me, you know, I think I think Sheila Hetty is is dealing with Kierkegaard's either or another book that you know I would you know clutch if there was a fire in my apartment. Um, but I think that relationship between her and Margot is a form of Cavell's perfectionism, right? Like really looking at the, the people in your immediate life as models, taking them seriously as models for how to live, and almost studying them. Um, one's friends and family as as sources of of wisdom that sounds tremendously um maybe saccharine but i but i've come i've come to believe it at the end of that at the end of that essay church not made with hands i i talk about how marriage for me is offered this kind of way of doing that right it's a marriage is a kind of narrative in which you you become enchanted Right. You are it depends upon you and your partner, your spouse believing in the relationship. That's it kind of hinges upon that. So it is this kind of story or this enchantment. But what a marriage is, and and there's no way in which I'm saying that this is the only way by which you can have this kind of perspectival change about how you might look at the, the other people in your in your life. But it really is. The wedding for me was like a public renunciation of self. It was it was. Um, an announcement that I was going to take up a, a perspective that's going to be shared always. Right. And that's daily spade work. I mean, that is, that is something that you have to work at every single day. And Cavell has this other amazing book called um, that I just read like two weeks ago. I've been into this, the pandemic, my pandemic viewing has been the screwball comedies of the 1930s and 40s. Have you seen these, like the, you know, the Awful Truth or His Girl Friday, like Carrie Carrie Grant, right. Catherine Hepburn, Irene Dunn. And these Cavell calls them comedies of remarriage, right? These, um, the beginning of the the movies, and they're based off like Shakespeare's late plays, like The Winter's Tale or something like that, right? The beginning of the movie, the the couple is in disarray. There, there's the threat of the divorce, or actively they do get separated. 
by the end of the movie, they somehow come back together. So whatever, and it's usually some sort of madcap, hilarious plot that somehow gets them to resuscitate their bond. But Cavell, in this book, Pursuits of Happiness, he's talking about, he's talking about the kind of, the calisthenics of mind that are required to, to become remarried again, to, to learn to forgive uh, to learn to have the imaginative space to see one's partner as a stranger again, to be, kind of be able to fall in love with them again. And he makes this radically provocative point. He says that the sort of gestures that are required by marriage are the same ones that are required by living within a republic or living within a democracy, which I don't know if I believe, um, but it's, it's such a daring statement um, and so anathema to the the sort of perspectival habits that we have right now that I can't f- help but find it compelling. You know, like um, that that being part of a community requires a kind of imaginative labor. And um, it's just not something I don't that we're tutored in. Um, which is why, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't want to interrupt, but I want to, I want to say this before I forget is that like two words come to mind as, as I think about everything that you're saying, I haven't read Cavell, but you know, I, I get where you're working like thematically, but Sheila Hetty, um, Ben Lerner, Tao Lin, David Foster Wallace, uh, Henry David Thoreau. Yeah two words come to mind like radical and attention. Yeah. And so you talk about, um, like casting about for ways to live or looking to your friends and family in your immediate sphere as models for how to live. You know, I think what makes, or a big part of what makes, how should a person be so compelling and how I, I think any book is compelling is the quality of the author's attention. And there is a kind of maximalism, I think, in Tao Lin, especially like, man, like talk about like maximal, slow, attentive yeah. concentration on every last detail yeah. of existence. Uh, ben Lerner, I think, does a great job of that. He, he's especially good, I think, at like paying attention to the psyche. Like, you yeah. know, it's been a while since I've read him, but like, man, I just feel like he really pays attention to his own mind, you know, the machinations yeah. of his own mind and thought. And yeah. Henry David Thoreau, like radical attention in particular to the physical world, like yeah. bean counting, like like going for a, like a four hour walk every day, staring at a leaf for like six hours or whatever yeah. he would do. Yeah. And there's something, and and then you talk about marriage, um, or you talk about human relationship generally, uh, whether it's in the context of a friendship or in the context of a community or as a citizen of a yeah. city, a county, a state, a country, uh, you can't love someone without being attentive to them. Mm-hmm. Like your, the quality of your attention is directly related to the quality of your caring and love, whether it's in yeah. an intimate relationship or a friendship or a neighborly way, or yeah. just like talking to somebody in the street, you know, giving them your full attention. Yeah. Uh, there's something really radical about it. And there's something I can't help but feel too, that it cuts against the attention economy (laughs) 
that yeah. we're all lost in right now with our phones and these fucking social media apps. Like, you know, yeah. how, how many times have you been talking to somebody and they're just like diving into their phone while they're talking to you? And like, yeah, it's a crusher. And, and, and I, I'm, I do it yeah, too. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and, and too, I, I teach school, I, I teach at a university and I, I notice that in my students, this sort of, this sort of, um, deprivation of, of attention and, and a, a kind of great sadness about how they're being, how they're being instructed on how to be a person, right? They're told to cultivate followings and see, you know, I think even the university is sort of trying to professionalize them before they treat them as humans. And um, I have students coming to my office hours routinely um, with a kind of desperation in their voice, just like really lost about what what they should be doing and, and where they should be placing meaning in their lives. And I, yeah, I don't think that that's um, unrelated to the, the attention economy at all and the ways in which they're asked to participate socially um, all the, all day, essentially. Um, and, yeah. and like, I mean, I feel the stress of this. Like I've disconnected from it, like social media wise, but it's with the understanding that it's in some ways to my own detriment. Like the way things are set up now if you don't have that quote unquote platform, if you don't have that audience, it's pretty hard to make headway otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the other thing that I often think about is the ways in which social media in particular seems to incentivize people to, um, to take on like a victim identity. And it's a little dicey to talk about because there is such a thing as genuine victimhood. And I don't mean to diminish that, but I think that if you're talking, if you're thinking about like a young college student or anybody who's looking out at the landscape and trying to figure out a way to make it in the world creatively for the purposes of this conversation, like it sure does seem like if you've got like a, a grievance to air, <laughs> that's, that's a way to get reciprocity on social media. You know, if something has happened to you, um, and you can make hay of that on social media. It's a way to get lots of likes and retweets and attention. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's good to air a grievance. You know, I don't, I don't want to misstep, but I can't help but feel like there is an incentive structure that has been built in these environments that isn't necessarily always healthy. Well, I mean, social media for me is just, uh, it's, I, 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 I avoid it. I'm my, my wife makes fun of me. She says, I'm like the Greg Kinnear character from you've got mail who, I don't know if you remember this movie, but it's like railing against big box stores and was worried <laughs> that like the, the ebook would threaten, um, you know, traditional publishing to which I often retort. Well, he was right. <laughs> you know, he was right a little bit about that. I mean, I'm, I'm so, I, I, I'm wary of social media just at, like on a personal level. Like I think, you know, like I just constitutionally, I, it's, it's nice to be liked and to like be, feel validated. And I worry that, um, I would, you know, if I was on there, I would just grow obsessed with it. And, um, so I have, I avoid it. And, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think I'm marginally, 
healthier as a result of it, just not being, um, not being on there. But, um, yeah, it's, it's weird as a, as a writer though. Right. Cause it, as you were saying, like, it's, it's nice to have that platform. It's important to have that platform, but, um, I think I, I know where my head can go. So, so I avoid, I avoid things that will take me, um, down those corridors, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I like to, you know, talk about how I've disconnected from it. Part of the reason I had to disconnect from it is because I was more affected by it and more addicted to it than the yeah. average person. So like, right. you know, like that's an important point to make and I just couldn't handle it. I guess there are people who can handle it, but I guess where I bristle is at this, you know, at this feeling of like, well, it's almost like an obligation or there's a penalty for not participating. That's like very uh, real, you know? Did you start, did you start meditating after you left social media? Was no. it like a, oh, okay. No, no. I, I mean, I've been doing that since I was like, you know, late college. Uh, okay. It got more serious. Like as I had, as I grew up and had kids and stuff, like it, the practice has become more sophisticated and, yeah. you know, everything else. But it started young. I think that, the decision to leave social media was tied to reading that I did. I think once I started to read deeply, yeah. more deeply about it and like thought about like the consequences of it, I was just sold by that. Uh, yeah. But the kind of reading that I was doing spoke as well to meditating. Yeah. Um, you know, just as like a ritual act, ritualized activity that, uh, you know, helps me pay attention better. Yeah. You know, and yeah. uh, I guess like, I just realized that probably in the aggregate wasn't good for me. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was coming at it from the sort of like surveillance capitalism angle, yeah. but I, but, but kind of coming out of it, like, having avoided social media or deciding not to do it, I feel like maybe the sort of attentive element is becoming more apparent to me. Have you, have um, you read that book, Surveillance Capitalism? The Age of Surveillance Capitalism? Yeah. I, 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 I teach, uh, parts of it. Yeah. It's an incredible book. I mean, I don't know why that book, yeah, that book should be winning all the prizes or have won all the prizes, but I, I made the same argument. I'm like, this feels like something I can't believe everybody's not oh, like, yeah. pounding the table like... over this book because once you realize like, oh wait, like data is the new oil and these companies yeah. are like, they're, they're tracking every move I make and then selling that in, in, you know, Intel yeah you know every which way like with with consequences that we can't even really fathom you know like right. who, who knows exactly how it's all going to be used in the end but like it's terrifying and well too i mean it's it's weird to think about it at the, at the level of design right the sort of the ways in which it's designed to harvest certain information from us and it, it creates a definition of personhood to which we comply in some sense just by virtue of using the platforms right and so there's, there's a sort of embedded de like Jaron Lanier talks about this in his book You Are Not a Gadget, where the the software itself has this embedded definition of personhood, which runs at least from my vantage, it's wholly antithetical to the the sort of definitions of personhood that that the books I trust kind of train me in, um, and so it it feels like there's this cognitive dissonance between the the definition of personhood that we're asked to inhabit when we engage in the market and when we go online and then that which we might be nourished by in other realms or the, 
the kind of perspectival habits we might otherwise be trained in um, in order to be part of a community, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, yeah. Well, I, I had a conversation on this program. I've had a couple of conversations with a writer named Jarrett Kobeck. He wrote a book called yeah. I Hate the Internet, uh, which became kind of like a, a cult hit, you know, uh, unexpectedly to him, it, you know, just kind of like took off. I think the title alone, everyone was like, yes, yeah. let me read that. Yeah. You know? But he's really smart on this stuff and thinks a lot about it. And I remember, if I'm recalling correctly, that we were talking and he was he was talking about the gendered nature of platforms like Facebook and oh. Twitter and, you know, you name it. But these things were created almost exclusively by dudes. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, yeah. like it's, it's worth, it's worth yeah. like, it's worth thinking about that because like you say, they have a profound influence on the ways in which we conceive of personhood. Um, oh yeah. And they were all, you know, created by incels <laughs> essentially like, <laughs> like I mean, you know, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, like the the what Facebook was that was created by a Harvard sophomore who is early like the beta, the beta stage was what, like essentially hot or not. Right. Like that's just right. like the, the that's misogyny is built into the, the sort of founding premise of that. It's it's yeah, it's uh, it's just uh, terribly sad. So la last thing I want to talk to you about is you. Uh, because you are a through line, obviously in the collection, you're kind of the protagonist, um, you know, traveling about in, in all these essays and, and, you know, observing. And I think as a character, what I find compel compelling about you is the fact that you're so erudite. Um, there's something anachronistic about your prose style or like a bit, you know, there's something a little bit old world about your presentation on the page. Um, and yet it's all very contemporary, uh, you know, in its explorations. And then, um, you know, like you've been talking about, you know, there's a, a depressive, um, you know, like emotional struggle that you've had to deal with in your adult years, which I think is a proportionate response to human reality. <laughs> uh, but then also you come from this family of like, like super athletic, um, dudes you know your dad played basketball at marquette for al mcguire mm -hmm. who i mm -hmm. was just talking about yesterday because I, you know we really? both grew up in suburban milwaukee we share right, that in common right. Right. i continue to be a brewers and a packers fan because my uh my sports allegiances were forged in early youth and like they're unbreakable yeah yeah so like i'm all i mean i have not missed a game in an embarrassing number of years and yeah I just find it interesting that this is all part of the package with you, that you were the quarterback of your high school football team, and yet you're struggling with OCD and suicidal ideation and depression. And, um, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I guess that's, of course, those things can come in the same package, but it's just, I guess it plays interestingly on the page as a character, you know, if I can yeah. reduce it to that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, what to say about that? I, I mean the the variety of of subcultures I um, visit, we'll say, or in, or embed in or immerse myself in, I think is is corresponds to like how many um, like this this wardrobe of self, right? Like I don't know if you experienced this, but like there I 
tried different things, a lot of different things, a different, lot of different ways of being. And, um, for me, writer, it's, 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 it's really crucial for me, like, um, going into these places, there's a danger, I think, in, in being touristic, you know, looking at the subculture and kind of pointing and sneering or just kind of, you know, be, being the egghead that like looks at the culture and, and says something area that are fanciful. Right. But for me, the, like, I don't, I don't go to a place unless I, I kind of know why I'm, I don't write about the place unless I know why it's why I'm going, why Bear the writer is going and why I'm emotionally connected to the place. And I'm trying, however, however successfully or unsuccessfully I'm trying to kind of triangulate myself with the subject and the reader. Like if I can put myself up for scrutiny next to the subjects of my pieces and say, here, here, reader, look at both of us together at the same time. And we're, I'm, I'm making myself available next to the, the subject for just, just as much scrutiny and analysis. Then I think it, I hope that a kind of connection is forged between the three of us, um, however fleetingly, right? And so that kind of impulse, I think, requires me to kind of go into my life and think about the various headspaces or different, you know, linguists would call them discourse communities. Like thinking about like the football essay, right? Like, yeah, I played football in high school. but for me, what was interesting about that experience, or what remains interesting about that experience has very little to do with any sort of like triumphant, like highlight reel of like my best plays or whatever. But what remains indelible to me is the ways in which um, the, that activity and the habits of mind about, and this is going to sound whatever, whatever, throwing a pass, leading a receiver into open field becomes a an embodiment or an incarnation of the habits of mind that you, when you think empathetically, right. When you anticipate where someone's going to be, that you're there with them and the language around sport, particularly football is so militaristic and so violence laden that it just seemed so incompatible with some of the beauty of the game that I myself partook in. And there was a kind of, sadness to playing quarterback because you're you were the one person on the field that saw that um who is embodying it and um so when i when i when i make myself vulnerable by talking about some of these experiences it's only in service of trying to articulate a habit of mind that I'm trying to cultivate in myself and trying to be able to express. I mean, if you backed me into a corner, I would probably say that all of the pieces kind of make their, that they're different iterations of that same conceptual practice, right? That, that I'm, if it's the, the intellectual swerve is the kind of like, how is this narrative actually perpetuating some sort of systemic thing that, that I find problematic or just kind of insufficient, the personal thing is, all right, how is that narrative affecting me so that I'm like no longer paying attention to what's around me? It sort of it re- relinquishes um, or, or it releases me from the responsibility of having to think by subscribing to some narrative. I mean, that's what ideology is, right? Ideology is, um, it's a shortcut. 
it's not thinking. It is the the sort of reflexive way of looking at the world, and um, an ethic of dutiful attention requires like holding up for suspicion these narratives that we tell ourselves about. What is it? What does it mean to be a person? Where do I place value in my life? How should I regard people with whom I disagree? How should I think about being an American or being you know, a millennial or being a citizen um, at this moment in history uh, or being a man, being a white person, all of these things, like how, how are the, there are certain cultural narratives built in and how are they affecting me? And so, yeah, that, that, that's why I think I, I kind of am harvesting my own, life is because it's the entry point for me to, to to come by these these things honestly well that's going to say it's how it's how you build trust with the reader too you know yeah yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, it, like you say you don't want to be touristic and lopsided you know i think you have to have some skin in the game i think that's how yeah. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. a reader knows that you're an honest broker and uh, i that i mean we're talking about sheila hetty and she's one of those writers that i think does that right like the the autofictional impulse when it's done well like with someone like sheila hetty i i i i trust that person there um rachel kadzi gansa is another one or a left bottoman these writers who or, or, or elisa gabbert she just had a book come out last year called the unreality of memory it's like writers who have skin in the game they're really making themselves present um and it feels you feel that urgency on the page when you read them. Yeah, I love that. I don't know. I mean, I think it's all a matter of taste, but like I, I yeah. that's right up my alley. When I feel like there's, yeah. I always say I like there to be as little membrane as possible between me and the person who's writing, and that can come in yeah. a lot of different packages. But when I don't feel that person close yeah. to the writing, then I'm just like ah, there's, it's hard for me to access yeah. it. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think too, and I mean this is kind of an this is kind of a, a curveball. But it I, it came to me as you were talking about your approach and how you're, you know, embedding yourself in all these different worlds and assessing the situation that we're in as people right now and maybe Americans in particular. I have increasingly been having the feeling, and I shared this, I think, with Melissa Phoebos. It might be the first time I've ever talked about it on this show, which now means I'm going to talk about it every episode <laughs> for like <laughs> the next three years, you know, this is because I get fixed on these ideas, but I, I have hunches that coalesce in me, you know, as the result of all a variety of different inputs, you know, mm -hmm. and I cannot help but feel like we are heading towards a time as human beings where there are going to be more and more radical, intentional communities formed mm -hmm. in environments that maybe cut against traditional expectations of such things. So... Yes, there might be like, you know, intentional communities formed out in the boonies where people are living communally on a farm. And I know these things have existed for a long time. You know, I know there have been urban intentional communities yeah. that exist and have existed. But I just think that climate and political reality, those two things are tightly bound yeah. in, my, in my mind, are going to force our hand. Yeah. And it's not going to be enough for like one person to cut the cord. <laughs> um, yeah. It's going to have to happen in community, not only because it might be the only way for the, these sorts of things to be survivable or livable, uh, but also yeah. because the power of communities who exemplify different modes of 
being will be that much greater than they would be if it was just like one person like Henry David Thoreau, Mm -hmm. like looking at a leaf at Walden Pond, you know, Um, you know, I I guess if they write a great classic book, then maybe they can reach a lot of people. But um, it's, it's like a way of saying like, this is where I see things headed in the future. It's also a way of saying that, like, I think there's a lot of things in our past that we haven't properly mined or that we've forgotten. Um, Yeah. I think that there are radical, like, I think a lot of the answers are already here, I guess. Um, some of them are going to have to be adapted to the realities of life on planet earth. Once we are at 1.5 degrees, uh, you know, global temperature rise or whatever. But um, I I think we kind of have to go backwards and forwards at the same time, if that is is a tolerable way to put it. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm thinking of that Rebecca Solnit book in which she talks about like communities forged in hellish, in the wake of hellish disasters. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, I think that that the disaster is a fertile terrain for um, new ways of, of approaching what, what it is we're doing here and how we're going to get along. It's also fertile terrain for making a shitload of money on condominiums. Yes, yes, that is that is inarguably true. <laughs> uh, well, Barrett, it's been fun talking with you. Um, really appreciate the book and all that went into it. Uh, and also your candor, you know. I think the ways in which you talk about your personal struggles is um, helpful to readers, or it certainly was helpful to me. You know, I'm always, uh, like, I always feel a sense of relief when somebody... Uh, opens up like that. I, I hope you're doing well, you know, uh, taking care of yourself. It feels like this book was kind of a raft, you know, from one shore to an, another. Um, but just, you know, hang in there and be well. And I'll be very interested to see what you come up with next. Are you working on another book? I'm working on a few essays. Uh, I got some fiction in the hopper too. So we'll see. We'll see what the the next We'll see like what permutation all this takes. It might be another essay collection. It might be I've got some stories that are done and then a couple of new ones. So maybe maybe a book of stories. We'll see. But well, talk to your brother. Um, talk to your brother and have him tell you yeah, t- yeah, what's going to happen. Tell me. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on. This was absolutely a, a thrill and an honor for me. So I appreciate it. All right, you guys. That's it. That's Barrett Swanson. That's the conversation. His new essay collection is called Lost in Summerland. It's out there now from Counterpoint Press. You can find him on the internet at barrettswanson.com. He publishes widely in magazines. Barrett Swanson, Lost in Summerland, available now. Go get your copy. Do it right now while I'm talking. Lost in Summerland. The Other People podcast is offered freely, more than 700 episodes and counting. The entire archive is made available to you for free. If you like this show, if you get something from it, if you listen on a regular basis and you have the means, support the show, tip your server. You can do that over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. There are different levels of support. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support this show. At higher tiers, you can get stuff. I'll send you a postcard, you can get a t-shirt, you can get a coffee mug, a tote bag, a sticker. I'll wish you a happy birthday even. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, if you have something you want to say, 
just email me. The address for the show is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. This show also has its own app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. The Other People app. Go get it. It's free. Why not, right? It's a good app. The Other People podcast is also now available on YouTube. It has its own YouTube channel. Every single episode is up on YouTube. Go get it. Subscribe. Smash the subscribe button, as the kids say. Who's coming up next? I have no idea. That's where I'm at right now, spiritually. But there will be a show. I don't know, man. We're heading into summer. We're lost in... Lost in Summerland already. It's not even summer, though, officially. We got to wait till June 21st, but you know what I mean. I hope you're doing okay. I hope you're hanging in there. I hope you're reintegrating into society as COVID restrictions ease a bit. Is social stuff weird? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. (laughs) 